Well, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, please open our hearts and minds that we would come away from today better able to live as your children. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I was converted to Christianity as a 17-year-old. In the years leading up to my conversion, the thing that most struck me about Christianity was its coherence as a worldview. Christianity just seemed to make good sense of the world. It made sense of why the world is full of both good things and evil things. Its ethics made sense to me, especially that every person is valuable as someone who's been made in God's image. And I like the way Christianity condemned hypocrisy and the abuse of power and defended the needy. This is what our world needs, I thought, this kind of thinking. And so when it finally came to making a decision, I threw my lot in with the Christians. What I then discovered, though, over the months and the years that followed was that Christianity is not first and foremost about living out an ethical system, but about a relationship with a person. Pretty quickly, God showed me that being a Christian is all about Christ. But as time went on, he also showed me the wonderful truth that being a Christian means having God as your father. The same one who placed each star in its orbit, who crafted the diverse beauty of the beaches and the mountains and the seas, who himself is perfectly good and free of hypocrisy, he has adopted me into his household and made me his child. He's brought me under his protection and care. He takes pleasure in the good that I do. He knows me perfectly, such that when, even when I'm confused about who I am, or, am or, or why I've acted the way that I have, it doesn't matter because my identity is secure in him. And he loves it when I draw nearer to him and express that fellowship with him. Well, the passage that we're looking at today, 1 John 3, has a lot to say about genuine Christian living. The first half is all about practicing righteousness. And the second half is all about loving one another. But the foundation of it all is the fatherhood of God. You see how the fatherhood of God underpins the whole chapter in verse 10, which is really a hinge verse between the two halves of the chapter. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right, now that's what the first half of the chapter is about, doing what is right, is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now, that's what the second half of the chapter is about, loving your brother and sister. But it's from the start of this chapter that you see how glorious God's fatherhood is. Verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. If you want to try to grasp how great God's love for us is, we'll grasp this. He has welcomed us with open arms into his household. 
verse 1, I love it. It's an exuberant outburst. It's sheer wonder. Even as a man in his 80s or 90s who had first seen this truth some 60 or 70 years earlier, being God's child still continues to amaze John. And so beginning with this great truth and with verse 10 as the hinge verse, the point of this chapter is that it's because we have God as our loving father and we are his children that we can live righteous and loving lives. Now, when I first became a Christian, I didn't get that. I was trying to live the ethical system without the relationship. And it strikes me that this is an easy trap for any of us to fall into at any time, especially because this, is, this kind of thinking is all around us. There's the so-called culture wars, which often pit the traditionally Christian ethics of the West against the newer ethics of individual self-expression and self-determination. As we get swept up into that, the temptation can be to make Christian ethics our primary allegiance rather than Christ himself. Within churches too, unhealthy subcultures can develop where we become more like a club with certain ethical positions than a family with God as our father. Yes, ethical positions are important. We'll see that in just a moment. But if we're trying to live ethically without first being rooted in that relationship, we'll inevitably end up bitter and exhausted and our churches will be divided. So it'd be good to have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 3 as we dive into the passage. So in the first half of the passage, we're given three motivations, which are there to help us as God's children to be doers of righteousness, to actually practice righteousness. Motivation one, because we will one day be like Jesus. Number two, because Jesus has fully dealt with our sin. And number three, because the devil is no longer our father. Now, the first motivation comes there in verses 1 to 3, where John throws our focus forward to Jesus' second coming. He speaks of when Christ appears, verse 2, and of this hope in verse 3. And he says that because we are now children of God, when Jesus returns, we will be made like him. As a consequence, verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, what John's saying here is that our future transformation into perfect Christ-likeness, well, that ought to motivate us to live righteous lives now. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks of how at Jesus' return, he'll transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies like his which is not just about the elimination of aches and pains. It's also about the transformation of our minds and our hearts. Our thoughts and our desires are going to be pure. There'll be no hint of wickedness or selfishness about them. How good will it be to live in a community of people like that? But for now, as God's children guaranteed such an inheritance, we seek to prepare ourselves 
for that time. We purify ourselves, John says, which is not, by the way, about scrubbing ourselves clean, but about coming to Jesus and being cleansed by him. And John was especially clear on that back in chapter one. About a month ago, my sister-in-law moved to Vietnam with her family. Her husband works for the Australian government and he was posted there to the Australian embassy in Hanoi. In the 18 months before he left, his job was pretty much to learn Vietnamese. Day after day of learning Vietnamese, all so that he would be ready when he arrived. Well, as God's children, we are to be preparing ourselves too. Day after day, purifying ourselves, learning Christ, making ourselves ready for his return. The second motivation is there in verses 4 to 7. God's children live righteously because Jesus has dealt fully with our sin. And John begins this paragraph by pointing out just how bad sin really is. Sin is lawlessness, he says in verse 4. So sin is not just about making a mistake or having bad manners or something excusable like that. The picture here is of an aggressive rebellion against God himself, lawlessness. In rejecting his ways, the sinner rejects his sovereign rule. But the reason Jesus came, John writes next in verse 5, was to take away sin. His mission was to end the rebellion and enable rebel fighters to come back to God. This was achieved, of course, at the cross, where Jesus took the punishment that we rebels deserve. Jesus himself was sinless. In him was no sin, verse 5 says. But he willingly endured God's wrath against sin so that it could be fully dealt with. This, then, is the Jesus who we as God's children follow and trust. In verse 6, John uses the language of living in him. Older versions of the Bible have the, the rich word abide. And John also speaks of seeing him and knowing him. So again, it's relational. And the point is, as we experience and cultivate our relationship with him, the idea of participating in that state of rebellion against God becomes more and more repugnant to us. He is the sinless one whose mission was to take away sin. How could we knowingly participate in sin any longer? And so John writes, verse 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. Now, just to be clear, the point here is not that if you sin, then you're not really a Christian. Uh, remember, John said precisely the opposite of that in chapter 1, that we deceive ourselves if we claim to be without sin. Now, the point is, as children of God, whose vision is filled with the sinless sin remover, we simply cannot treat our sin lightly. We must flee from it. And when it comes, we must deal with it properly. Sin 
is simply not who we are anymore. And so when we do sin, we don't just brush it off and excuse it. We don't continue in it as if it really doesn't matter that much. No, we bring it to him. We expose it for what it is and we have him put it to death. Now, there will be people who probably bump up against people, even Christians perhaps, who will tell you that your sin doesn't really matter that much. But we mustn't let people like that lead us astray. John says in verse 7 that actually doing right is really what matters. It's the one who does what is right who is righteous, he says, just as he, that's Jesus, is righteous. The third motivation for righteous living, uh, verses 8 to 10, is because the devil is no longer our father. Being a child of God, you see, is not just about joining a new family. It's also about leaving an old one. In the Gospels, Jesus at one point says to his opponents, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. That's in John chapter 8, if you want to follow it up. And John picks up on that binary here. In verse 10, there's either the children of God or the children of the devil. And to continue on in sin, to fail to do what is right, well, that's the defining characteristic of those who are in the devil's family. The person who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, John says in verse 8. Now, this is not saying that every non-Christian is demon-possessed or, or something silly like that. Rather, it's simply saying, and I think quite profoundly saying, uh, that the origins of sin and wickedness in our world are from the devil. And when a person goes on in unrepentant sin and fails to see its seriousness, well, that person participates in the devil's work and so reveals their membership of the devil's family. But for we who are children of God, participation in the devil's rebellion is simply incompatible for who we are. Now, John gives two reasons for this. Firstly, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, how did Jesus destroy the devil's work? Well, the cross took away any power that the devil had to accuse us before God. But secondly, verse 9, because if we've been born again, God's seed remains in us. Now, this is a bit of a funny phrase, but essentially it's saying that the same agent that brought us to new birth as God's children is still at work in us. Now, John's speaking here about the Holy Spirit. He's the seed who both brings us to new birth and who now lives in us, making us more and more righteous. One of the discoveries of a newly married couple is just how different different families are. You don't have a top sheet under your doona? Weird. Well, the devil's family and God's family, they couldn't be more different. Sin is no longer the marker of family resemblance. Righteousness is. So let's get serious about putting our sin to death 
and pursuing our Father's way of righteousness. Well, in the second half of the passage, we see a little bit more what this righteousness looks like. Having God as our Father means that we ought to love one another. The fatherhood of God, it's not just about individual, it's not just an individual relational thing, you know, just me and God. No, it has implications for our relationship with our siblings, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 11 gives the basic command here that we should love one another. And the one another that's in view there is other Christians. But since the command to love one another risks sounding a little bit vague in general, John then goes to give a little bit more shape to what this love looks like. He says, it's free from Cain-like hatred. It's full of Christ-like self-giving and it's faithful to God's truth. In verses 12 to 15, John uses Cain to epitomize the very opposite of one another love. Now, you might remember the story, Genesis 4. Cain and his brother Abel both bring offerings to God. God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And so Cain murders him. Now, you can't get any further from brotherly love than someone who murders their brother, can you? But what John draws our attention to here is the relational dynamic that was at play there. Why did he murder him? John asks in verse 12. Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. It was because of jealousy, in other words. A jealousy of Cain's a jealousy of Abel's righteousness that drove Cain to hatred and murder. Well, we need to pay careful attention to that dynamic. Now, you might think, it's simple. I should love my Christian brothers and sisters and not hate them, and that's that. But it's not that simple. The jealousy of righteousness that leads to hatred, well, that can be a subtle force that that invades and pervades Christian community. I remember a painful rift developing between two groups in a church that began when one person unfairly accused another of self-righteousness. Now, the issue from memory was the continued use of grubby language. When the person was told it wasn't appropriate to be speaking in that way, they responded bitterly, well, you're just being self-righteous. A part of what lay behind that comment, I think, was jealousy over the genuine righteousness of the person who had gently rebuked them on this issue. You see this jealousy in the public square as well. When Fred Nile appeared on Q&A a few years back, he copped an absolute battering on social media for saying some pretty orthodox Christian things. And the sad thing was, there were plenty of Christians who jumped in for some Nile bashing as well. Some denounced him and said things like, if we're going to win the world to Jesus, well, that's not the way to do it. Now, you may not agree with Fred Nile's politics, but he is a Christian brother. And the views he, were, he was criticized for, they were Christian views. See, 
When we side against righteousness and express hatred against a Christian brother or sister, we are siding with the world. But John tells us in verse 13, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The world will hate us and should hate us if we are living in righteousness and love. And so let's not join in on that hatred. We are people of life and love, not of hatred and death. Let's examine our hearts. Are there Christian brothers or sisters that you, in your jealousy and hatred, would prefer to see dragged down rather than built up in love? If so, repent of that. We are meant to love one another. Now, if Cain was the epitome of hatred, well, Jesus is the epitome of love. It's in laying down his life for us that we truly know what love is, John says in verse 16. And that should then be how we love each other. We should be full of Christ-like self-giving. Now, we hear that and instinctively we hardly agree. What greater love could there be than dying for another? But the risk is we can hear that and perhaps unconsciously it can excuse us for doing anything less than dying for my Christian brother. I mean, in 21st century Australia, it's very unlikely that I'm going to have to actually die for someone else. But John calls us out here and he gets very practical. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has not pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So while I may not need to give up my life, I'm certainly called to give up my excessive lifestyle. There are two conditions there in verse 17. Firstly, I have material possessions. And secondly, I see a brother or sister in need. And loving my brother, well, that means that I meet their needs with my possessions, to love with my actions and in truth, as verse 18 puts it. Now, I know that through COVID, uh, some of us have been hit hard financially. But for the majority of us, this teaching here should be confronting. I find it confronting. We have material possessions. We live in a wealthy part of the world. We have even an excess of wealth, which was the first condition that John mentioned, we have material possessions. Perhaps the question then is, how open are our eyes to that second condition, to the need of those around us? Have we been distracted such that we haven't seen the material needs of our brothers and sisters, both locally and globally? Well, let's keep our eyes open. Agencies like Compassion and others can help us to do this on a global level. But at a local church level, let's keep our eyes open to who it might be that God is putting in front of us who has material need. And if you're wondering what it means to give money sacrificially and generously, it can sometimes be hard. How do I calculate that? 
Well, here's a tip that I've found helpful. If your discretionary spending is bigger than the amount uh, you give away, then you're probably not giving sacrificially. The amount that you pay for things like hobbies and holidays and entertainment or of getting fancier versions of essential things, you know, that, that nice car or that renovated home, well, that amount should be less than what you give to things like church and global mission and, as here, to meeting the material needs of others. Well, the final way John shows us what this kind of one another love looks like is there in verses 19 to 24, that it should be faithful to God's truth. Having just told us that practical sacrificial generosity, uh, about practical sacrificial generosity, John's no doubt attuned here to the instinct of our hearts that says, don't give it away. That belongs to us. Our hearts can be resistant. And so John says that we need to persuade our hearts that this is what genuine love looks like. Now, there's a bit of translation trickiness here in verse 19 when it speaks of how we set our hearts at rest. The verb that's translated set at rest Every other time it's used in the New Testament, it's translated as convince or persuade. And I think that's probably how it should have been translated here. It's certainly translated that way in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. See, what our hearts desire needs to be brought in line with God's truth. Verse 19 details how this works. It says, if our hearts condemn us, you know, our hearts saying, you should be keeping that money for yourself. Well, we need to remind ourselves in that situation that God is greater than our hearts. In other words, that his way is the right and compassionate way. And we also need to remind ourselves that he knows everything. So his ways are good and trustworthy. And this connection between truth and love is why in the next few verses, John returns to speaking about God's commands. For his commands are a big part of how he reveals the good moral framework that he has stitched into the fabric of his creation. And so, as we love one another, we need to ensure that such love is driven by truth. So often we know the right thing to do, don't we, when it comes to loving others, but that little voice of selfish desire whispers to us, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to protect yourself. Well, in that instance, we need to persuade our hearts to remind ourselves of God's truth and goodness and the rightness of his ways. And it's as we do that, that our hearts more and more do become aligned with God's truth and they no longer condemn us. Verse 21 and that we can go gladly and confidently to God and ask for what we want, knowing that we will get, her, get it, because what we want now aligns with what he wants, verse 22. So that's John's sketch of what love for one another looks like, as those who are children of God. It's free of Cain's worldly jealous hatred, it's full of sacrificial generosity and it's faithful to God's truth rather than the wayward desires of our hearts. For the past two generations, my family has owned a beach shack up on the central coast. And when we stay there, 
almost always our dinners involve meat cooked on a wood fireplace out in the backyard. Why on a wood fire? Because there's few things better than the smoky goodness of a perfect steak cooked on wood. But also because that's just what colliers do. My father did it with his father and he taught me and my brother to do it too. And one day I hope to teach my kids as well. Well, if you're a Christian, you have a father in heaven. You're in his family. And righteousness and love? Well, that's just what children of the father do. It's who we are. It's what he's teaching us because we belong to him. So don't try to live the ethical system without the relationship. Draw near to God and know that joy that John expresses there in verse 1. He is our Father, and wonderfully so. And so we are the ones who live lives of righteousness and love. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how precious a thing it is to know you as Father. What love you have given us. Please continue to work righteousness in us, reminding us that one day we will be like Jesus, that he has dealt with our sin and that the devil is no longer our father. And please free us from jealousy and hatred for one another, filling us with Christ-like self-giving love that aligns with your truth. Amen.